All right, so quick question. How many of you were here last, last September? I did a two-part workshop like this on culture. How many of you were here for that? Okay. The reason I'm asking that is because if you remember last year, after the first Wednesday night, my mom was hospitalized and she had to have open heart surgery. And we prayed for her uh, that night. And so my mom is here tonight, recovered from her open heart surgery. And so, um, yeah, very, very blessed by that. So my wife is also here tonight and I'm gonna refer to her a few times as I, as I go along because because most of the suffering <laughs> that I've experienced and I've dealt with has actually had an influence on her. And um, that's sort of the way God designed it, that we are one in him. And so not, neither one of us actually experiences anything ultimately alone by God's design. So, so what I want to do is um, I wanna, we're, we're going to tackle, a, it's a big subject, okay? The, the reality of it is every person that's ever lived has desired to understand suffering. What is it? Um, it's a huge subject that's impossible to grasp fully. And um, even though it's universal, everybody's always experienced it throughout history. And thousands of people, literally thousands, have written on this subject and have learned incredible things. So understanding suffering completely in this world, I don't believe is possible to have a, a full understanding of it. But what I want to do is over the next two Wednesday nights, I want to pass on to you some of the things that I've learned about it. And in the little promo that I did for tonight, I, I, I referenced three questions. So what I want to do is in these next two weeks, I want to offer you the things I've learned, the answers that are not fully complete yet, but the answers that I've come up with about what is suffering, why does he permit it to be part of his creation, and how should those that know him perceive and respond to it? And so in your notes, you're gonna notice that prior to actually plunging into suffering itself and answering those questions, um, I think it's crucial to have a basic understanding of one foundational fact and then three truths. Now, for those of you that don't know my backstory, um, I, I am a pastor, I've been a pastor since 1985. Uh, served in the military. Um, my wife and I and our children were missionaries in the central Philippines. I've done ministry in, in a lot of different uh, contexts to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations in their life, including prison ministry in a third world country, including a lot of ministry to disabled, which I'm going to refer to a couple of events, a couple of the things that I've learned from some folks back in the day um, uh, from disabled people about, about suffering and so forth. And then one of the things that I, that I do also is I train uh, missionaries. They're going to go live in mostly developing nations. I train them and key members of their church on how to live successfully in another cultural context. And part of that training, uh, by necessity, requires passing on to them what is known as a theology of suffering and a theology of risk. Now, I'm going to talk about why that's even necessary here in just a second, but I want you to, to get a handle on that. Now, let me start with, um, and, and over the next two weeks, I'm going to unpack some personal experiences. They're not going to be in the chronological order that I experienced them in, but I do want to unpack them for you. And let me, 
Let me start with, and you have it in your notes there, um, the idea that in 2004, I was actually diagnosed with a terminal disease. I'd always been very healthy, um, was in the military, used to run 10Ks, did uh, mountain biking and all this kind of stuff. Around 2002, my body started doing funky things, um, went through a whole bunch of testing, and in May of 2004, I was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, with ALS. And what I learned in that process, although I was aware, because I'm a huge baseball fan, so I was aware of Lou Gehrig, I was aware of Catfish Hunter dying from the same disease and, and other athletes that have had the disease. What I didn't discover until I was being tested was that it's the one diagnosis that no neurologist ever wants to give because it's absolutely terminal and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no cure. Uh, there's nothing. Normally, in most cases, about 90% of the people who are diagnosed with ALS die within five years. It's a horrible death. So at the age of 45, having just transitioned out of my church to direct Shepherd Staff, the missions organization that I work with full-time, our first grandchild, two years old, my body started doing things, and three different neurologists, including a VA neurologist, told me, you've got ALS, you're going to die a horrible death, get everything in order. Which, by that time, and I'm going to unpack this more as we go along, I had developed what I thought was a pretty solid theology of suffering. I'm going to tell you how I really got launched onto that from the people I ministered to here in San Marcos, if you're familiar with Mountain Shadows, way back when, but ministry to the disabled not long after I went full-time with my church. And um, a, a theology of suffering that helped me to do ministry to other people certainly helped me in, in what we did in the Philippines where the average person in our church made $3 a day, where, where suffering was just part of day-to-day -day life, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, to do ministry to, to mind-bending poverty and God's people living in the midst of that where we regularly dealt with people in our church who, if they had four kids and one was in the hospital, the reality of their situation was if they bought the medicine for their kid that's in the hospital, they couldn't serve dinner to their three kids at home that night. It was life at that level and ministry at that level. It was taxing. It was tiring. And so I had developed what I thought was a pretty, pretty solid theology of suffering. And um, when the ALS diagnosis came, it was... It was the most incredible day of our lives in a negative way. <laughs> and all of a sudden, now, my theology that I had developed to minister to others and encourage others, I had to actually, I, well, God permitted me to put it to the test and see how it affected me. Now, I'm going to talk more about what happened in those first few months after the diagnosis next week. But for tonight, I, I want you to know that... Um, the ALS diagnosis changed me uh, radically. And let me give you the kicker. <laughs> Two and a half years later, after changing everything in our lives, selling our place we lived here, moving to Nevada, moving the ministry that I had started and we were operating here, moving it to Albuquerque, 
transitioning over the executive director role to one of my elders, we made the move to Mesquite, and two and a half years later, I was told, you were misdiagnosed. Now, I'm going to refer to that because that's a crucial moment in my understanding of suffering. And in, in, a, in, in a way that I think you're all going to be able to relate to. But in September of 2006 in Las Vegas, I had, when I was first diagnosed in San Diego, I had connected with the ALS Association. Uh, most people that have ALS are very despondent and in despair. I wasn't responding the way all of their other clients did. They said, will you be our chaplain? I became the chaplain of the ALS Association in San Diego at the time. Did a lot of visiting with people that had what I thought was my disease at their bedside as their body shuts down. And ALS shuts down all of your voluntary muscle system. Um, and so basically you're trapped in a body uh, that doesn't work. The only thing you have control over is your eyes and blinking. Uh, nothing else works, and, and eventually what you have to do when you're diagnosed with that and you're told right up front is you need to start thinking about when you can't breathe, do you want to go on a respirator? And when you go on a respirator, you need to determine how long do you want to be on the respirator before somebody pulls the plug, one of your family members. So it's like harrowing in your face weight that this disease carries. And so when we moved to Vegas, we moved to Mesquite. After selling our house, we moved to Mesquite to be near my brother and my son and uh, so forth. I got involved with ALS of Nevada in Las Vegas. They asked me the same thing. I was doing a lot of things for ALS of Nevada, fundraisers. They actually sent me to the National ALS Association. I met Tommy John. So if you're a baseball fan, I got a picture with Tommy John. And it was the year Kurt... Uh, Kurt, the pitcher for the Red Sox, uh, Schilling, Schilling when, he, when he wore the sock. You remember that? So that, that was the year I was diagnosed. So it was just interesting timing. Well, anyway, LS of Nevada asked me, hey, would you become our chaplain? And then they said, hey, we want to start a clinic where we bring all of the medical experts from uh, the different fields that ALS patients need, neurology, speech pathology, um, uh, respiratory therapist, bring them all to one location so the patient doesn't have to go around. Long story short, they said, we'd like you to be the first patient to go through the clinic, go meet with the neurologist that's going to sponsor it. I went to meet with him. He checked me out. He said, I think you were misdiagnosed. I'm like, what? And so, long story short, he gave me the needle test, which if you guys know what an electromyogram is, it's a horrible test where they jab needles in your muscles, all of your muscles, including your tongue, through the bottom of your mouth and directly into here, and they do that's a lot of stuff. Three times I had that done. He said, I gotta do that to you again. But long story short, you probably don't have ALS. You have a different neuromuscular disease called Kennedy's disease, spinal bulbar muscular atrophy. It's an inherited chromosome disease, X chromosome. It's passed on by your mother to her male children. You will pass it on to your daughters, and they will pass it on to their male children. Sometimes it manifests, sometimes it doesn't. So I had a DNA level test done miraculously. The VA approved it. They didn't normally do that. Test was done at Mayo Clinic. I got Kennedy's disease. Oh, you're going to be crippled, but you probably have 10 to 12 years of mobility and speaking and swallowing ability, maybe 15 to, seven year, 15 to 17 years, but it's probably not going to take your life. 
as a baseball guy, the ALS diagnosis was the ultimate curveball, right? It's like God threw the ultimate curveball. And, and we got used to it, and we embraced it. We learned much about ourselves through it, which I'll unpack for you. But the upshot of it is I was re-diagnosed, and so now it's been, you know, well, September of 06, so it's been 13 years since that re-diagnosis. And I'm miraculously doing well. I saw my neurologist last week. She said, you shouldn't be in the condition that you're in. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> and so I do have some issues. I have some issues, my wife will tell you, <laughs> both, <laughs> both physically and psychologically. Um, but anyway, I wanted to start off with that because so much of what I'm, I'm going to share with you was sort of crystallized with a terminal diagnosis with no apparent hope. And then to be re-diagnosed, uh, and every ripple effect produced by a faulty diagnosis. All of the ripple effects of that, one, what appears to us as a mistake, and how God is able to steer everything that happens in this world. So we're going to talk about that. So number one, the first thing I want to cover from, from your notes and I'm going to unpack more of my story as we go through tonight and next week. There's a foundational fact that you have to understand, and it links back to what I told you at the beginning. What I do now is part of my job in training churches and missionaries. You have to understand that suffering is influenced. Our view of suffering is influenced by our culture. Now, I had a taste of this when I began doing ministry at Mountain Shadows to people with cerebral palsy and spina bifida. And I stepped into the world of the disabled three days a week doing ministry there and teaching Bible studies with them and learning how to use their communication boards before computers where their boards were on top of their wheelchairs and they had columns and numbers and words and letters in the columns and to have a conversation, a one-sentence conversation took you 15 minutes as you counted the columns and they would blink and then you'd go down the column and they would blink to let you know that's the word they wanted and then you start over to get the second word of the sentence. What I learned there, even in the American context, is their view of suffering and the ones that were verbal were able to express these things to me. Their view of suffering was much different than mine. Suffering was a part of their lives. It was a part of their day-to-day -day experience. Yeah, it was bad. It was painful. It created incredibly embarrassing dependence on other people, which I'll talk about. But the reality of it is, is suffering was a part of their world, and it didn't control them. It didn't master them. Some of them it did, but especially the ones who knew Jesus, and those were the ones that I usually connected with, came to my Bible study, they didn't let their physical condition and their suffering control them. And that's an important concept. So what I have to do in my role now is I have to teach Americans that their understanding of suffering, including American Christians, is really unbiblical, doesn't match historical reality, and is incredibly dangerous for their emotional health and for their usefulness to God and other people. 
So our culture's beliefs, basically, let me sort of summarize it for you, and you guys that, will know, that know me, especially Joby, I always got an angle with their culture. I always see things through a cultural grid because I think culture is fascinating, and, and if you don't understand it, you don't understand not just what people do, but why do they do it? So in American Western culture, we are what's called a hyper-individualistic culture where the greatest goal in life and the right of every American is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Self-fulfillment is your God-given right, and everything in your life, every decision you make, is based on the idea that I need to be happy. I need to find fulfillment. I determine my meaning, my value, my worth. I'm responsible for feeling good about myself. My esteem is self-generated. And when you factor in how many Americans are actually, eh, they say they're believers in God, but basically they're secularists, materialists. <laughs> in that kind of context, the reality of suffering is absolutely devastating. It's, it's something that is foreign, that needs to be avoided at all costs, that needs to be somehow, you know, pushed aside. How dare anything keep me from my self-fulfillment, which is my right as an American. So an American's, an average American's view of suffering is that it's not normal. It's an aberration. It should be avoided at all costs. And anything associated with suffering, including physical pain, should be minimized as soon as possible. And so we try to kill pain. And when you try to get rid of all pain, pain is a purpose by God's design. Pain has a purpose. It's a messenger. It's a gauge on your car that tells you something is wrong. But when you try to avoid pain and you numb it or you ignore it, you're not actually dealing with the thing that's causing it. And you'll actually end up damaging yourself by not listening to pain, by avoiding it at all costs. So... That's Western thinking, Western beliefs, Western, and a lot of this is filtered into the church, even though you can't read the Bible, especially the New Testament, without seeing suffering, uh, the Old Testament for sure, but especially the New Testament and the life of our own Lord and Savior, suffering is part of the fabric of life and following God. And we'll, talk, we'll unpack more of that as we go along. So in non-Western cultures, collectivistic cultures like we lived among in the Philippines where I've done ministry uh, with in a lot of other areas in Southeast Asia, in Thailand, in Singapore, um, in Nepal, where there are either Christians or Buddhists or Hindus or whatever, suffering is a normal part of life. See, to us, suffering is a surprise. How dare this happen to me? But to the rest of the world, suffering is not a surprise. It's a necessary reality of life. Life is suffering. That's what sort of pushed the Buddha to become who we know as the Buddha. The incredible suffering he saw outside of the super wealthy palace where he grew up when he went outside. Buddhism started based on the reality of suffering in this world. 
So suffering for non-Western collectivistic cultures and my friends at Mountain Shadows with disabilities, suffering's not a surprise. It's a part of life. And because they have that view, it, it's been harnessed to help them move towards the main purpose of life. And the main purpose of life is not self-fulfillment. The main purpose of life is to enhance the good of your family, your village, your tribe. As your tribe is lifted, you are lifted. And again, that mindset of the collectivistic culture is I am because we are. We are because I am. I mean, I am because we are. Because we are, I am. Whereas for us, I think, I do, therefore I am. Okay, so suffering in these collectivistic cultures, and you have to think biblical, because we're going to look at Job next week uh, in quite, quite in depth. We're going to look at Job, Jesus, and Paul next week. But the reality of it is, as you read the scripture, suffering is, is a part of life. And here's the other thing about the people in other cultures. Their cultural view of suffering is that it's their responsibility to use it for the purpose that they envision for it. Nobody else can force it upon them. In other words, when suffering comes upon them, it doesn't upset them. It actually, uh, they see it as their responsibility to respond to it properly. And in a way that brings honor to their family rather than shame. So it's their responsibility to use it for the purposes. So those are a couple of, uh, that's a foundational fact that, that you have to understand. Teaching Americans, including American Christians, about suffering, you have to understand that everything, almost everything you've ever thought about suffering has been influenced by the culture that you were born and raised with. And in that culture, suffering is to be avoided at all costs. It's not normal. It serves no useful purpose. And actually do whatever you can to avoid it. Okay? So, with that, let's look at, in your notes, uh, Roman numeral number two. So, I've covered the foundational fact that culture matters. Now, second, I want to look at the truth number one. Okay? If you have your Bibles, you can... You don't need to turn there, but I just I want to sort of zero in on something that's going to cover both truth number one and truth number two. Keep in mind, the Bible is the true and living God's self-revelation. Okay? It's not primarily a manual on how to live. It's not, it's not the, ma the, the, the maintenance guide. It tells you how to live. It tells you what pleases God and what doesn't, but that's not the reason God's given us his written word. It's the revelation of the true and living God in written form, and he's chosen to reveal himself in story form. The Bible is 70% narrative. We learn how, who God is by reading the story that he's written for us on what he's created and how he interacts with it. It's not abstract, conceptual, nebulous stuff that you can't wrap your mind around. You learn who God is by the way he interacts with his creation, and we know it because he's told us the story of his creation. 
and his interaction with it. And so the first couple chapters of Genesis um, reveal right off the bat the idea that this God who's introducing himself in the Bible, in the beginning God, um, is sovereign. That he existed before time, that he has supreme authority, he speaks things into existence. To answer those three questions that I talked about at the beginning, this is what I've learned over the years. You have to view those things through and answer those things through these three truths. And that first truth is the idea, the concept of the sovereignty of God. Now, God tells us how he created in chapter one. In chapter two, you have some detail on his creation of Adam and Eve. One part of his creation that's distinct from everything else. He's created everything and we share some similar uh, characteristics with the animal world, but basically we're the only ones created in his image and likeness. He's relational, he's personal, he's communicational in the essence of his being. This one God exists in three persons. We're created in his image and likeness. We're personal, we're relational, we're communicational. They're created in a perfect environment and he loves them. We're going to talk about more about that in just a minute. He loves them and he wants to basically uh, choose to maintain the relationship that he has initiated in creating them. They're created in the perfect environment, in the perfect relationship with the perfect God, but because they're truly created in his image and likeness, he gives them the right to choose. Okay, so in your notes, under point number eight, God is, the sovereignty of God means that he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the supreme power and authority over his creation. God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, to whoever he wants. God is sovereign. So that's sort of fleshed out there. Point number one, he has ultimate control. And what I've learned over the years, one of the helpful grids that I've developed is if what the Bible says is true about God being sovereign, then whatever actually happens, he knew would happen. He permitted it to happen. And he has the ability to steer the consequences to serve his purposes. So he has ultimate control. Whatever happens, he's permitted. And he stirs rebellion to serve his purposes. I've put in your notes there. Well, I don't know if it's in your, in your notes or not. But it's, if it's happened, he permitted it. And he's going to steer it to serve his ultimate purposes. Now, you might not ever discover what those purposes are in this life. That's one of the other things I've learned. <laughs> and I'm going to button this up a little bit later. Knowing the purpose for your suffering doesn't make the suffering any easier. The idea, well, if I just understood why I have cancer, if I understood everything that is going to result from being misdiagnosed with ALS, if, if I thought that would have helped at the time, it wouldn't have. Knowing the purpose behind the suffering, the specific purpose, doesn't lighten suffering's load. It does make a difference, but it doesn't lighten the load, okay? So, in Genesis chapter 2, I want you to zero in on verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God's interacting with Adam, the male, and he's saying, Look, I've given you a job to do here. Uh, I want you to manage this as my sub-regent. 
Um, and you can eat whatever you want here. Everything you need is already here, but don't eat from that tree. The day you eat from that tree, you will die. Now, many years ago, this jumped out at me, and it's something that I've been fleshing out over the years. And what really prompted me to think about it is how many people I know, especially pastors, who came from the 60s and 70s, right, and lived the whole hippie life, and then they met Jesus, and they radically changed. And now they're raising their kids, and they tell their kids, listen, don't do these things. Let me tell you a little bit about my past. I did this, I did this, I did this. And the idea is that as they share their own personal experience, the negative consequences of their choices, the idea is that that should help their kids to buy in to not doing the same things themselves. But how many times does that actually work? <laughs> okay. The reason it doesn't work goes back to Genesis chapter 2. And so I've kind of come up with my own little verbiage to try to explain how God teaches. And basically what you see is, is in verse 17 of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. And the Hebrew concept of death is not cessation of existence. The Hebrew concept of death is from the relational context. It's the idea of severing. It's the idea of taking something that was familiar and making it foreign, alien. So when he says the day you eat, you will die, what he's say not saying is you're going to cease to exist and you're going to fall over dead physically. Your physical life ends. No. The word comes from the context of relational. The day you eat from that tree, if you eat from that tree, a severing, a cutting, a separation will take place. Now, what's God doing there? Well, I call it, he's teaching using contrast. It's an important subject, especially having to do with suffering. The whole idea of contrast. Now, what is contrast? Well, it's a verb at its core, meaning contrast is a verb, and it's to compare two things to show unlikeness or differences, especially things of op opposite natures. So the idea of contrast. And so what God does here is Adam and Eve are in this perfect relationship with God. There is no evil. There is no rebellion. Everything's operating the way God says. And he says, don't eat from that tree. So what he's trying to do is instruct them and, and giving them the opportunity to love him and reciprocate his love towards him on their own, with their own free will. And what he says is, if you eat from the tree, you'll die. So he's instructing through what I call conceptual contrast. Okay, are you with me on this? Conceptual contrast. Conceptual meaning it's an idea. It's a mental picture of something that is conceived and formed and then exists in the reality of the mind. So God says, you're in this perfect position. You don't need anything. You don't need anything from that tree. If you eat from that tree, he's trying to instruct them and get them to make the right choice based on what I call conceptual contrast. He's contrasting 
what is with this idea of death. If you disobey me, death. So that's God's preferred method of communicating and, and instructing those created in his likeness and image. But you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is they didn't learn from God's preferred method of instruction. Now, they were going to learn that what God was saying was true, but if they wouldn't buy into it conceptually, now they're going to know it by experience. So I call that experiential contrast. You see, when they actually eat from the tree, they literally die. What they could have avoided if they would have bought in to conceptual contrast, they now know by experience they fall. They're separated from God. They're separated from one another. And you know the rest of the story. Mankind, humanity's default method of learning these days and since then is what? Is it conceptual contrast or is it experiential contrast? It's experiential. So you tell your kids, don't touch the stove. It's hot. You will feel pain. You will feel discomfort if you touch that. Don't touch it. What do they end up doing? They touch it. Now they know by experience what is not painful and what is painful. But that's our default mode. And so down throughout the rest of the scripture, and you can just follow this through, you see these two ideas all the way through. The value of contrast, and it's relevant for suffering. It's very relevant for suffering, which is why I bring this up. The system that God set up, because he's sovereign, we were hardwired to learn through conceptual contrast. But because we make decisions that matter, we only learn through experiential contrast. Most of us, even after we come to know him, we still default to experiential contrast. And so when you read through the rest of the scripture, and no time to go through the details, but the basic idea is Cain, same way. Cain, where's your brother? And remember what happened previously is God rejected Cain's offering. His countenance fell. God says, Cain, if you, if, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Conceptual contrast. But Cain had to learn the hard way. If you don't do well, you're going to be overtaken. There's something in you that's going to capture you and make you its slave. But if you do well, you don't have to surrender to that. Well, you know what Cain chose. So the rest of the Bible in many ways all the way through the Old Testament. Moses with Pharaoh, Moses with the children of Israel, all the way up through the prophets, into the New Testament, Jesus, John the Baptist. They're proclaiming their method, God's method of instruction for the good of people is conceptual contrast. Repent, turn, do this, do that. Avoid the actual physical consequences and other consequences of disobedience. Learn conceptually or you will be forced to learn experientially. And that's basically what's unfolded in the rest of the New Testament too with the epistles. Okay, everybody with me so far? Okay, so that's the first, and I'm going I'm to link this in here in a, in a few minutes. So the sovereignty of God and particularly the idea of God's methodology of using contrast, 
ideally conceptual contrast matter when it comes to suffering. Truth number two, and this is, again, part, part of what I'm sharing with you is, again, what I've developed over the years to train missionaries and those that care for them. The second thing that's crucial to understand about suffering is the idea of the glory of God. Okay? The Bible reveals that the God who has revealed himself here, he relentlessly pursues his own glory. And the pinnacle of God's glory, his most glorious attribute is his love. He relentlessly pursues his own glory. And, and so his passion for his own glory with his love being the greatest facet is all through the scripture. Now in your notes, you have different references there. And you know there's a whole bunch of them that I could have gave you. But if you understand this core concept that it's all about the glory of God, that God created Adam and Eve to reflect his glory, the creation reflects his glory, and then Adam and Eve were created to reflect his glory. Point number A, creation in general reflects it. The heavens tell the glory, the glory of our God, Psalm 19. Humanity uniquely reflects it. We're in his image and likeness. He's given us creative power. We don't create from nothing, but we take what he's already created and we're able to shape it and mold it and develop technology. We reflect God's glory with our ability to create from what's already there that God has created. So we uniquely reflect God's love and glory, and that's what we were designed to do. That's why we're, we were created, right? I think this is not new information to you. Now, the other component of this under point number three there is that God's desire is uncoerced love. God's desire from those he created and in his image and likeness is uncoerced love. In the essence of God's being, this one true God who exists in three persons, there, God is love in the essence of his being, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Holy Spirit, the, the love of God, that other focusedness, that passion, that self-denying, lifting up for the good of the other members of the Godhead. And now he creates us in his image and likeness, and he loves what he's created. All of what he's created, but especially us. But if we're really going to be in his image and likeness, we have to have the freedom, the choice, to not reciprocate his love. We have to have the freedom to not learn from conceptual contrast, but make a stupid decision and learn from experiential contrast. God's passion is uncoerced love. In the same way that your love, if you're married, the idea that it's not coerced is, is what makes it so special. If your husband or wife had no other choice but you, if you were the only one on the market, <laughs> you would wonder, how is this love? What if they had another option, another choice? So, it, so choice makes final decision matter. Okay, so reciprocated love, when the creation, when we love God back, when we reciprocate the love that he's bestowed on us, that reflects his glory. That reveals who he is, what kind of God he is, which is why marriage is so crucial. That husband-wife relationship, there's nothing on the planet that, that reveals some of the dynamics of the Godhead 
the glory of God like the love between a husband and wife. And no time to unpack that. So truth number two is that God's passion is for his own glory. Now let me tell you another story quickly. Um, I'm going to go about 15 minutes and then we'll stop. I'm not going to get all the way through this, obviously. We'll stop for Q&A. But when I first went to Mountain Shadows, here's what happened. I, I resigned from my job at the end of 85. I went on staff with my local church. A call came in the following week. This lady said, my son has cerebral palsy. He's just been transferred from a home in L.A. to a place there in Escondido, San Marcos, called Mountain Shadows over on El Norte. He's a Christian. Do you have anybody there that would be willing to go over and meet with him, welcome him to the area, and maybe do a Bible study there? I had no idea about cerebral palsy. I never interacted with people. I went over there, and I met this kid. Kid. Well, he was about my age. Um, but his name was David. And his body was just completely shrunken up. The only control he had was over his neck and his bottom jaw and his eyes. He was a 150 IQ, trapped in a body that didn't work. And so as I got to know David and, and talk with him using his board, the 15-minute, two-sentence conversation, I just fell in love with this guy. And his love for Jesus and his passion to hear God's word taught. He wasn't able to read because of his eyes. Um, and so eventually he introduced me to his friend, another guy named Matt. Now Matt, and Matt is the pivotal guy in my understanding of suffering. When I met Matt, now you could only communicate with David through the board. But one day, the second time I went to meet David... And I was expecting, oh, man, it's going to take me forever to communicate with the board. Here was this other guy, like my size from the torso up, but sitting in a wheelchair like this, his legs like this, sitting sideways, and he had control like this. He, could to he was totally verbal. One eye looked this direction, one eye looked that direction. But he was just this amazing guy. And as I started to go down the columns with David, this guy, Matt, would start interpreting for me with David. He had David's board memorized. So he could just like talk with David like that. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and so I got to know Matt and Matt's like, oh, so you're the pastor that came and visited David. Wow, that's really awesome. I'm glad you're back. Are, are you going to do a Bible study here? You know, I really want to study the Bible. You know, I've been a believer for a long time. And so I got to know Matt. Matt became one of my best friends. I'm going to talk more about Matt next week and, and how Matt brought out of me a level of sin that I was not aware of. But eventually what happened was as I got to know Matt and I could just have a regular conversation with him as he sat in his chair, he started telling me the story of now, now Matt, you know, had cerebral palsy. So he had an external catheter. He was diapered. Um, he couldn't really feed himself. He had some control over his fingers so he could feed himself. But basically all of us, like a lot of other people, his teeth were ground down and so forth. And he he, we just got to know each other, and he told me his story, and I told him mine. And he would talk about being cared for by aides who have to change his diaper, who have to change his catheter. This complete dependence on other people to live his day-to-day -day life. Those 14 surgeries he's had on his hips as they continued to atrophy 
they would have to go in and do surgery on his hips to relieve the tension points. The guy lived in a world of pain that was just mind-boggling. But in this one conversation, and this was the crucial conversation that prepared me for what was going to happen many years later in my life, Matt said, you know, Jeff, he goes, I can't tell you how many healing crusades I've been taken to and dropped on the floor. Like, really? He goes, yeah. You know, well-meaning Christians take me to a healing crusade and the evangelist prays over me in the name of Jesus and they lift me out of the chair and then, you know, drop and then after they do that, you know, it's like, well, it's your fault. You're not claiming all the promises of God. Are you sure you don't have some sin, sin in your life, brother? And so he was just telling me about his experience with these wacko, what I would consider wacko Christians. And so I got a taste of that later on when I was diagnosed with ALS. But the moment it came to me was Matt said, Jeff, he goes, I got this new aide here. And he's an atheist. And he's been taking care of me. And there were six people in each house. He said, this guy's been taking care of me now for a couple weeks. And he's really open to the things of God. And I said, well, how do you know? And he goes, well, let me tell you about this conversation. He goes, he came in here and he was all smug as he's wiping my butt. You know, he's all smug. Oh, so you're a Christian, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And so you love Jesus, huh? And Matt said, yeah, I do. And he goes, uh, so, so what do you, you, you Christians, do you believe some of these kind of things? And like, Matt goes like, well, like what? What do you think we believe? And he goes, well, you believe that there's a God who created all things? Yeah, I believe that. And you believe this God that created all things can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, whoever he wants? He goes, absolutely, I believe that. Okay, and then, and then do you believe that this God loves you? Absolutely. And he goes, and, and this God who loves you and has the ability to do everything, he lets me wipe your butt? Is that the God that you love who has the ability to heal you and chooses not to? And I got to take care of you? And Matt said, that's him. That's the God I love. And he goes, let me get this straight. And then he went through the whole litany again, this, this guy. So you love this God who has the capacity to do this to you, do this to you. He doesn't do any of that, and you still love him? And Matt said, yeah. And he said, the guy sat down next to me, and he said, I want to know more about your God. I don't believe in God, but there must be something about this God you love and you worship than what you get out of him. There's something worthy of him, about him, something valuable about him that he's so real to you, he has the capacity to not relieve you of the situation you're in and you still love him. And some wheels started turning in my mind about the whole concept of suffering and suffering's ability to reveal the worth and the value of God. And one of the things that I learned, and I didn't realize I had practiced this on a fleshly level previously, is that as Americans, we've been taught that if you want somebody to know the worth and value of somebody you know, you tell them what they do for you. Oh, I have this favorite uncle. Well, why is your favorite? Well, he bought me a new car, paid for my kid to go to college, bought me a house, bought me a business. 
Telling other people what somebody you love does for you does not declare that person's true value. You can't show somebody's value to somebody else and entice them to want to know him if everything you say about him is what you get from him. I didn't realize this, but that's what happened with her, my wife. We started going steady. I was 15. She was 13. When I went in the Army directly out of high school, I was stationed first at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and then at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. Uh, we were all the way across the country. I was an E1 when I went in. <laughs> Bottom line is, I loved her, she loved me. We wrote letters and we made $3 a minute phone calls. And I lived in the barracks while I was in school. And all my buddies, when they got paid, it was to downtown Boston, to what was called the combat zone. If, you know where, if you've been to Boston, you know what that is. Um, and they were buying cars and they were buying stereos and they, you know, we're living in the barracks. So you're not spending any money on housing or food and they're just partying down. And I wouldn't go participate in any of those things. Why? Because I love her. So every dollar that I made, I saved for my $3 a minute phone calls. I saved so that when I had a three-day pass, I could fly from Logan Airport back to San Diego and spend a couple hours with her. And it never occurred to me until that talk with Matt that my friends would go, Jackson, what is wrong with you? You're not indulging in any of the things that we indulge in, that you have the money to indulge in. That chick out in California, she must be something. <laughs> her value and her worth was declared by what I was willing to give up to be in her presence. Not by what she does for me. And this is what this aide discovered. I don't know if the guy ever came to the Lord because he quit a few weeks later. But I had some great talks with him. His name was Ben. And it, was, it crystallized this idea that suffering in particular brings a unique opportunity when you're losing everything familiar and comfortable and you still love God, the worth and glory and value of God is displayed like it is in no other way. Think of Job. The whole point of the book of Job was Satan said, he loves you because you've blessed him. He loves you because you're the giver of gifts. If you take away the gifts, he'll curse you to your face and turn his back on you. And you guys know the story of Job. Job never understood the purpose for his suffering. He didn't know he was going to be in the Bible. All Job saw was right in front of him. God was acting in ways he didn't like. He certainly confronted God. He questioned God. He was miserable. But he never bailed on God. And basically he said, look, if, even if he kills me, I'm still going to love him. Because he's worth loving and giving everything up for. Okay? So, the idea of the glory of God and God's passion for his own glory and, and, and the idea of the worth and value of God being declared by loving a God who has the ability to change your situation and doesn't. That's a reflection of his glory and a facet of his love that we're going to plumb more later. And finally, truth number three. Jesus 
is God's glory made tangible. And when we deal with missionaries, especially as we talk about the idea you could be taken hostage in certain countries, you are a target, you got a blue passport, you stand out from those you live among, risk in taking the gospel to the nations is increasing daily in many countries around the world. Um, you have to understand your identity and the source of your identity. Because, again, you've been shaped and molded to think that your identity is first and foremost as an individual. That I declare who I am, what my identity is. I have to do things to make myself feel good about myself. I have to esteem myself. But when you surrender to Jesus, you are in Christ. And he is the source of your identity. And God in Jesus is love on display. God is love. Well, what does that look like? Look at a guy named Jesus. God became man. The creator of all things stepped into his creation, about this next week too, and entered into the broken, suffering world and experienced all that it had to offer in our place. And when we come to him, we are in Christ. And there's nothing that can separate us from that. And if, as he said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. The whole idea that most of the New Testament teaching on persecution and suffering is irrelevant for Americans and has been irrelevant for Americans, but it's there. And it's going to become more relevant as things change to where we're going to start, I think, experiencing what has been the normal Christian life for everybody else on this planet since Jesus was here. And if your Lord entered into suffering, and we'll talk more about how he, how he responded to that next week, then basically, um, who are we to expect any different? You know, one of the number one obstacles to getting people to the mission field is their Christian family members. How dare you take your kids over there? Are you crazy? Because we have made safety, security, and comfort an idol. And we think it's our God-given right to be safe, secure, and comfortable. There's nothing of that in the Scripture. There's nothing of that in the New Testament. So... When Jesus comes, God's glory is his highest priority. Now, he had his moments. We'll talk about that next week. Oh, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Lord, let this, Father, let this pass from me. Ah, but not my will, but yours be done. We'll talk about body, spirit, and soul, our tripartite makeup next week, and I'll weave that in, and what I learned about that about a month after our diagnosis, after weeks of crying all night long. Together, my wife and I. God's glory was his highest priority. Self-denying, self-sacrificial, suffering, accepting was what reflects the glory of God like no other. Self-sacrifice, self-denying, suffering, accepting, 
for the glory of God and the good of others and justice satisfying. He came to die. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. How would anybody have thought about that at that time? The Lamb of God, what do lambs do in the history of the nation of Israel? They die. They're put to death innocently. Their blood is shed. There's the Lamb of God that makes forgiveness with God possible. He came to die. He came to suffer. And because he's done that, he's able to come alongside us. Now let me give you the... What I, in all my study, and trust me, I've read, if you ask me, I'll give them to you, dozens of books on suffering. Especially when I was going through the whole realm of thinking I had ALS and should I go on the respirator and how long on the respirator? What is life physiologically? What is life spiritually? But basically, in all my years, this is the, the best definition that I've heard. It's the simplest, broadest, all-encompassing. Anybody know who Nate Saint was? The End of the Spear. Remember the movie a few years ago? Jim Elliott, the five guys who were killed in Ecuador in 1956. Nate Saint was the pilot. He was killed. His son, Steve, was three years old at the time. Eventually, he moved back into the tribe that killed his father, that speared his father to death. His aunt actually led a lot of that group, along with Elizabeth Elliott, that Wadani people, to Jesus. Steve Saint grew up there in Ecuador, speaks four languages. A few years ago, when I was going through this, Piper had a conference on suffering in 2005. It was interesting. All this stuff was happening, suffering, right about the time I got diagnosed. And the whole Kurt Schilling thing, it was just really weird. And at Piper's conference was Johnny Erickson Tata and others, and then Steve Saint. And Steve Saint gets up there, and he's like the fourth or fifth speaker, and he says, look, you guys all took my notes. <laughs> Basically, you, you taught my message. And so he just gets up there, and he starts talking about And he says, listen, as I thought about it, what is the best definition of suffering? He says, the only one I could come up with. Suffering is expectations divided by reality. Suffering is expectations divided by reality, or what I say, the difference between expectation and reality. That's suffering. Are you with me? But the point that he made, that's the same definition for blessing. Blessing is the difference between expectation and reality. Same definition for suffering. And so you get into that realm of contrast. Expectation, reality. Learning by contrast. And so the reason I like that is because suffering is a broad word. And there's physical suffering. There's pain. There's physical pain. And then there's emotional pain. Suffering in this big top word, this big top definition, gives room for personal suffering because... Suffering is always personal. It's subjective. It's always subjective. Sometimes it's objective, where you actually have physical pain in your body. Others can observe it. It's measurable. But sometimes suffering is mental anguish. And so 
That's the definition that I, that I like the best. And so um, I want you to, I want to read this verse and then I'm going to close. I want you to think about this through next week. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and fears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reference. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard and killed. He was heard and killed. And the guy who said all things work together for the good for those that are called according to God's purposes had his head cut off a few years after writing that. Measuring goodness must be different than how we would define goodness. All things work together for the good. Is losing your head good? Well, it depends on your reference point. Depends on a lot of issues. So, I want you to think about that. We're going to talk about it. We're going to look at Jesus, Paul, and a few more stories from myself and Job next week. And I'm going to try to, try to make this a, a lot more practical. Um, a couple of nuggets. All suffering is personal and subjective. Suffering is a, should be viewed as a servant, as an instructor, not a master. It's a servant. Knowing the larger purpose of suffering doesn't lessen the load. I already covered that. And whatever you learn that I'm passing on to you, don't just go unload it to somebody else that's suffering. When somebody's in the midst of suffering, they don't want to hear your theology of suffering. <laughs> There's a time for it. Sometimes just presence is what's needed. So I'm going to stop with that. Any questions? Any comments? Any thoughts? We've got five minutes. Yes, sir. Jonathan. I think it's I think it's new as a result of World War One. World War One changed our culture in a lot of different ways. Um, and so I think I think certainly World War One, World War Two was maybe the final blow to the idea of suffering. And it's interesting. One of my favorite books, if you if you want to read one, of, it's, it's a combination of a great missionary autobiography and so forth. It's called The Gift of Pain by Paul Brand. Paul Brand was a British guy, a doctor. Uh, he grew up in India. Uh, in 1938, graduated, uh, came back to England, went to medical school, was in medical school during the time London is being bombed. He's getting his medical training, and he talks in the book about the soldiers and the idea of contrast and, and, and relativity. He says, listen, soldiers would come back from the front with their legs blown off, their hands blown off, and they were so happy. And they were so joyful. Why? Because they expected to die on the battlefield. The fact that when the bomb exploded or they, were, they heard the machine gun fire and they woke up completely changed their view on their suffering. They were thankful 
They were thankful because they were prepared to die. And so again, you get into that idea of, of contrast. With me, the only time, I mean, you just think about it. A diagnosis of a neuromuscular disease that's going to make me crippled as I get older, that's a terrible diagnosis. Unless you've been diagnosed with ALS, then it's a jump for joy diagnosis. Thank God I have a neuromuscular disease that's going to cripple me and not kill me. It's your reference point. It's personal. It's subjective. And it infiltrates all these things. So I don't know. There's, it's, an, it's a fascinating study. But as our country, after World War I, World II, we moved away even more towards an individualistic society. We went from an honor and shame-based culture. We more, uh, George Patton, what took place in World War II, is a classic example of this conflict our country was in when Patton slapped a guy. Uh, a couple different soldiers during World War II and had to apologize to everybody in front of everybody because of what Eisenhower said. That was a pivotal moment in the history of our country. And this morphing from, from a collectivistic, honor-shame-based culture into hyper-individualism and everybody's individual feelings is what matters most and treat them with kid gloves and you have to find your own worth and own value. World War I was the pivot point in that. Fascinating books on that subject too. All right. Any other questions? All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Lord, I know I've unpacked a lot of stuff and I pray that your spirit would sift through it. The reality of it is that you're an amazingly good God. You give us understanding about the reality of the context we live in. You love us enough to tell us the truth. And I pray, God, that you would take the truth that's from you and what I've said and drive it into the hearts and minds of your people that are here. That as the suffering that's part of the framework we exist in, as it comes upon us, as it comes upon those we love, Lord, that we would be vessels of love and mercy, encouragement and comfort and truth. Never surprised by it but Lord, always ready to surrender it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.